people be called here tonight. And certainly in an evening where maybe the weather isn't quite as enjoyable as we'd like it to be. I want to thank each and every one of you for being here. And I want to thank the CEO for not only inviting me here tonight, but for beginning the process over this past year to be doing what CEO is doing. And in my travels around the world, you know, this is one of those homegrown evangelization outreach programs that really gets me fired up and has my heart because I truly believe that every single one of us, as we all know, as we've read about tonight in the program, every single one of us are called to be evangelists. And I know for most people that probably strikes fear in your heart. And I am not ashamed to tell all of you, even though I will share with you tonight how incredibly blessed I am to be alive and how grateful I am to have the calling that I do in this world. For years of my life, I thought, not me. Oh no, Lord, not me. You want me to do what? Speak publicly? About that? About you? Oh, I can do anything except that. And maybe some of you get that feeling inside of you sometimes too. You know that you will be called to witness to a certain person in a certain place, and you're thinking, oh Lord, here am I, send me, just not there. <laughs> right? So know that you're safe in that with me, but I hope that what you're getting from me tonight is not only a glimpse of what God has done in my life, but how by the grace of God, I am equipped to answer the call that was given in my life. You know, I think we live in a world where lots of people think that, you know, God only calls people who are equipped. And we have it that God equips the call. And I am the really testament of that. But my life and my evangelization, evangelization started 35 years ago, right across the other side of the state in Sioux City, Iowa. Because 35 years ago, my biological mother entered St. Luke's Hospital there in Sioux City with the intent to end my life. I should have died from my mother's abortion in August of 1977. But God had other plans. But before I share that little part with you, I want to share with you a window that God gave you just a few years back into the power of witness in all of our lives. Because a few years back, I was speaking at an event not far from where my husband and daughter and I were living in Sioux City. I was speaking in a little place called Onawa, Iowa. Maybe some of you have heard of it, right off the interstate. And I was speaking there in Onawa, and there were two men that night who were just overcome with tears. And one of the men got up and left before I had a chance to speak with him that night. And the second man actually stayed around, and I was looking forward to finding out what it was that touched it so deeply and induced those tears. And that night, he climbed up on the stage to give the benediction, and I realized that he was a priest from the local community. And I held my breath, waiting to see what it was that he was going to say. And he spoke the most powerful words that night that have changed my life. He said to a crowd, of just a couple hundred people that night. He said, and who says that prayers go unanswered? And I could feel the electricity in the room when I thought, it really feels like he's talking to me. And he was talking to me. Because he went on that night and said, 
In August of 1977, I used to pray outside of St. Luke's Hospital in Susie Island that someday a child's life would be spared from an abortion. And here she is. Talk about the power of prayer, right? And I know all of us in this room are prayerful people. Sometimes we may doubt whether we see the fruits of our labor here on earth. But I hope that you stay steadfast to the faith of knowing that if you don't see a glimpse here on earth, you will someday see in heaven the fruits of your prayers. God just happened to allow that priest and I the opportunity to see it on this earth. And so I share it with people around the world. That is one of the biggest keys, is sharing it. Not keeping it to myself, but sharing it with all of you. And so, now you know a little bit about the power of prayer in my life, but maybe some of you are wondering, how does someone survive an abortion? And certainly maybe wondering what type of abortion it was. Back in August of 1977, my biological mother was 19 years old. She was a college student. And she wasn't married to my father, even though they had been dating for four years. And my mother entered St. Luke's Hospital to undergo a saline infusion of abortion. I know that many of you who are involved in pro-life work probably remember a saline infusion from back in the 70s. It was a very routine procedure. It isn't done anymore because, frankly, too many of us live. In a culture that doesn't want to talk a lot about abortion and what it does to children, doesn't want to acknowledge lives like mine, what they learned back then is that the saline infusion was fairly unsuccessful. <coughs> too many of us children survived, and now then they moved on to much more effective ways of making sure an abortion was successful. But the saline infusion abortion that my mother underwent involved injecting a toxic salt solution into the amniotic fluid that was surrounding me in the womb. That toxic salt solution was delivered, and I soaked in it. I should have soaked in it for a little less than 72 hours. My mother's abortion should have been complete within three days. But for some reason, unbeknownst to any of us, my mother's abortion lasted five days. So I soaked in that toxic salt solution for two days longer than what I even should have. And that toxic salt solution was meant to scald me to death from the outside in. If you go home and look it up on the internet, you can read how children like me are actually called the red skin or the candy apple babies because it turns the skin bright red as it peels it away and moves internally into the organs. I soaked in that toxic salt solution, and on the fifth day of the abortion procedure, my mother went back to the hospital and had her premature labor induced with me, which was again a routine part of the procedure. And on that fifth day, my mother was meant to give birth to her firstborn dead child as a result of a successful abortion. And from what I've been told by the medical professionals, some of whom I've actually been blessed to meet in my life, they initially believed that the abortion had succeeded in ending my life. And as I was delivered there at the hospital, they left me for dead in my mother's hospital room. We all know what they were going to do with my body later. I would have been disposed of. Like tens of millions of children before me, 
resilience as children asking. But as I said, God had other plans that day. Because by His grace, there was a nurse tending to my biological mother. And she heard the weak grunting noises, which for a newborn is like gasping for breath. And so she heard those weak grunting noises and realized that that little girl they had left was a successful abortion was actually aborted but was born alive. And that's when those doctors and nurses stepped in and provided me with the medical care that sustained my life. Praise God for them. Many people in our world don't realize that they didn't have to provide me medical care that day. It wasn't until 2002, I believe it was, I was getting here mixed up, 2001 or 2002, that President Bush enacted the Infants Born Alive Protection Act that spelled out that children might need to survive failed abortions will be provided medical care. But back then, my life depended on who was working that particular shift. And what I love, what I love is that there were people there that day that said, yes, yes, Lord, we see what has been done. Yes, Lord, we know that she's alive. Yes, Lord, we will provide her the care that she that was the difference between me and tens of millions of other children. We've lost 55 million lives in the last 40 years of legalized abortion. I'm not here today because I know so much more special than tens of millions of other children. I am here today, I truly believe, because people said, yes, we will answer that call. And so the medical care that was started that sustained my life. You know, I know you would never guess if you passed me on the street that I survived what I did, that I suffered what I did in the womb. And truly, that was one of the things that I thought I could keep to myself over the years. As time went on and I was struggling with the call for my life, I thought, I never have to speak about this because no one would ever guess. They would never know. But God would always know. God would always know, and God knew what the plan was for my life. As fearful as I was early on, I knew God would always know. You would never know by looking at me today that when I survived that thought for my life. My mother thought she was less than five months pregnant with me when she had her abortion. But the fact that I lived and I weighed a little less than three pounds, I was two pounds, 14 ounces when I survived pointed to the fact she was further along in her pregnancy than what she had understood. And when I finally obtained my medical records in recent years that detailed my mother's abortion, those notations by a doctor remarked that I looked like I was about 31 weeks when I survived. I know. I hear that intake of breath and I see the raise of eyebrows around the world wherever I go. And I know in our hearts we know what abortion does. But truly, I believe an important part of evangelization when it comes to the cause of life is that we let people know that whether that child is 31 weeks gestation or 31 days gestation, that life is precious and deserves to be protected and respected. You know, I always tell people, I'm the same person today as I was when I survived, as I was when I was facing that salt solution in the womb. I'm the same person. I'm just at a different stage of development. 
And by the words of my God, I seem to be in that state of life where I just keep getting older every single day. I have a four-year-old. And God bless her. Anybody in this room who knows us knows that our daughter is a very bright young lady. But my family and I just moved from Sioux City to Kansas City, literally on Friday. And I drove here today. <laughs> by the grace of God, go no I. I am not kidding. But our daughter remarked the other day, she said, it's okay, Mom. You don't, we won't be moving again. You won't be moving until you are older, and I'll be taking all of your things somewhere else. <laughs> For so many. 
But that is the power of our witness. By showing in our words and our actions what love looks like, we are thereby showing other people how they can do it too. And so because of that great love and that care, I went home to my family. And I was raised in a little area, many of you have probably heard of it, Storm Lake. <clears throat> Absolutely. That wasn't where my family was living at first. We ended up moving there when I was about five years old. But I grew up in a home where I always seemed to know that I was adopted. You know, my parents did an amazing job of letting my older sister, who's also adopted, and I know that adoption was a loving gift we were given. And we knew we were loved not only by our adoptive parents, but we were loved by God, and we were loved by our biological parents, who made loving, selfless plans for us when they were in a position that they couldn't care for us. That was our normal growing up. And adoption was so normal in our house that when, after 15 years of infertility, our parents had a biological child of their own, we actually couldn't figure out why they had it. <laughs> <laughs> it's a funny story, but you'll catch that sometimes in interviews that my family and I do together. I was seven years old when they told us that they were expecting my brother. And when they said they were having a baby, my sister and I were sitting on the couch and we looked at each other and we said, that's fantastic! You're adopting another baby? They said, you know, your mom's almost five months pregnant. And I fell off the couch <laughs> at the age of seven. We had never seen anything like this in our house. And my words to my mother that day was, why would you do that? <laughs> we couldn't understand. Why would you have a biological child when you could just adopt again? I mean, look at how great. This <laughs> has turned out. But my brother is an amazing blessing. And his life is just testament of not only what a blessing my parents are, but how God's plans are always fulfilled. You know, I can't imagine what it was like for 15 years for my parents to struggle with infertility and for them to wonder, is this what it's going to be? And then when God's plans are fulfilled, they're available for my sister and I. And then along comes my little brother. And we grew up, always knowing we were adopted. I was you growing up, I had been born prematurely. Those didn't seem to be big issues in my life. Lots of people ask me that now. Did you see this coming? No. I had no idea before that things like this happened in the world. And I certainly never would have thought for a second that my biological parents had ever considered having an abortion with me, nonetheless actually following through with it. And it wasn't until I was 14 years old that I found out the truth about who I am. And God always has this way of bringing the truth to life. And quite typically it happens in ways that we don't see coming. And when I was 14, an unthinkable thing happened at our house. My older sister had an unplanned pregnancy. She was still in high school. And even though we were raised in that home where we knew about the sanctity of life, where we knew about the gift of adoption, my sister still had fears and anxieties, like so many women do, whether they're young or older. And my sister considered having an abortion. I am so grateful for my sister that she knew that no matter what her fears and anxieties, the love of our parents was greater than that. That she could turn to them no matter what, 
You know, I was just speaking to about 10,000 students in Canada last week. And one of the things that I talked to those young people about was, if there is not someone in your family you can turn to, then who is it? Is there someone in your life who will embrace life regardless of the circumstance or situation? Everybody needs someone in their life, just like my sister had our parents. Because the outcome would have been so different for my sister, for her child, and for the world. Because I never would have found out the truth about the abortion that I survived if she wouldn't have approached them. 21 years ago, my sister approached our parents and told, told them that she was pregnant. And our parents really knew in that moment of time that God was intending for them to speak the truth about what had happened in my life and the hopes that it would solidify in my sister's heart what we knew to be true about the sanctity of life. And I am so grateful to say that my oldest nephew is 21 years old. And his first child was just born two weeks ago today. That is the power of speaking truth in this world. Can you imagine how many lives you will touch if you just speak the truth in love? I'm so grateful for him. And I am so grateful that my parents heeded the word of God. Because by then telling her the truth, she ultimately led me to the truth. A little over 21 years ago, I had waited for my sister one night. We were having a conversation. In the middle of the conversation, she said to me something I had never heard before. She said, you know, Melissa, at least my parents wanted me. Ooh, that's right. I had never heard words like that before. And as far as I knew, we were on equal footing at our house. We were both equally loved and equally wanted by both sets of parents, adopted and biological. And so that night, she encouraged me to ask our parents for more of this story. And so I did. My mother was the person that I spoke to that night. And when I told her about the words that my sister had spoken, the look on my mother's face was so pain. I had never seen it before. And she went on that night. She said to me, you know, Rosa, we never had to, to keep this from you. There's just no easy way to tell you this. She said, we love you, honey. We'll always love you. And then the words that she said, she said, Melissa, your mother had an abortion during her pregnancy with you. And you survived. And there are words. There are no words except utter devastation. I knew in that moment of time God had an amazing plan for my life, and I felt so blessed to be alive. But I'll be incredibly honest, that night I was in an immense amount of pain. Because at the age of 14, I couldn't understand how anybody could make that kind of decision about me. And I truly believe that's one of the things that we're lacking in this world, is it's the ability to recognize that abortion affects all of us. Lots of people want to turn in the other direction and pretend like maybe somehow it doesn't happen in their church or their school, their home. But the truth is, it's happening all around us every single day. And all of us are impacted. And I felt that in that moment of time. I also felt 
grateful that that anger did not last very long. That anger was transformed by God into great sadness for them and for men and women just like them who are given no other choice or feel like there is no other way. Somehow they put abortion going to fix things. I have nothing but sadness for my parents and men and women just like them. But that night I felt that little bit of anger until it was transformed. That night I also struggled with feeling ashamed. Because we live in a world that wants to say that what happened to me was my mother's right. It was just a choice. You can get rid of that when another one will come along someday. When people say those kind of things, they're talking about me. And at the age of 14, it was so incredibly hard to deal with that amount of pain. And I also struggled, started that night with feeling guilty. Guilty for surviving. You know, I would say to God, why me? I am so thankful to be alive, but why me? Do you know what I wouldn't give? To have another child living like me. But I have nothing to feel ashamed about. I have nothing to feel guilty about. This was the plan for my life. And it is my blessing and my gift to use it to save other lives. And God will transform lives through the process. But that night, I started to face the struggles. And I was blessed with an amazing family who has always stood by my side. My family's greatest concern for me over the years was that I was somehow going to be hurt in the process of looking for my family and coming forward with who I am in the world. My family desperately wanted to protect me, but they have always stood by my side. And I was blessed with an amazing church and even surrounded by teachers in the public school who supported me and loved me and allowed me to be me out loud to the world. And that was the beginnings of what I do now today. How many of you have seen the film October Baby? That's a pretty good number. For those of you who haven't seen it, I would encourage you to check it out. You can run it through Redbox, and I think Netflix now, I think even Walmart sells it. October Baby is a great story based on the life of my friend Gianna Jessen, who was also an abortion survivor. We're about the same age, we survived the same type of procedure. And the difference between Gianna and I is that she has cerebral palsy as a result of the lack of oxygen after she survived. But October Baby is a great story, and many parts of my life mirror the story of October Baby. Because like the character in it, I went looking for my family when I was 19. My hope was not only to find out answers to all of the questions that I had, the whys, the hows, the whos, but I also, more importantly, wanted my family to know that I loved them and that I forgave them so long ago for the decision that was made to end my life through that abortion that I can't even tell you the first time that I forgave them. But I say first time because I forgive my family over and over and over again, every single day of my life. And I was just speaking to students about that on Ash Wednesday. You know, when we enter this season of Lent, I think forgiveness is such a huge piece for all of us to focus our sights on, to 
to forgive just as we were forgiven. As someone who counsels many people, I will tell you I've seen how hard it is for so many people. But for me, it's been quite easy because I keep my sights on Jesus. And I can see him on the cross, and I know what he did for me and for all of us, including my parents. So I wanted them to know that I forgave them. And I also, at that time, started looking for my medical records. You know, as I shared at the beginning, I spent years of my life thinking I could never do this. You know, I'm not a public speaker. I'm a social worker at heart. I love helping people. Who wants to be a public speaker? Isn't that the greatest fear of most people in the world? I was never formally trained. God equips those who are called. But I knew that the day would come, even in those years where I was thinking, oh no, Lord, you've got the wrong woman. One out of 55 million, and he has a song, right? <laughs> Who am I to say? But even in those years, I knew that the day would come. And so I knew an important part for me was to obtain my medical records. Because that's a common complaint about me in the secular world. Is look at her. She looks perfectly normal. I know. I wake up in this skin every single day. And I know that it's hard sometimes for people to believe in miracles. But I believe in that. I see them every day. And I pray that each and every one of you have the same opportunity that I've been given to see them. Because it's an amazing blessing. But I knew those medical records would be important. And it took me 10 years to find my family and 10 years to finally obtain those medical records. And in those 10 years, I did everything it was humanly possible to do to find my family and obtain them. You know, I talked with attorneys. I petitioned the courts. I contacted the hospitals, both of them. I even worked for the same agency that handled my adoption. Because God has a funny sense of humor, I believe. <laughs> you know, I tell you, I, was, I would sit in my office for days. And, you know, every morning I would sit there and I'd look across the hall and I'd think, they're probably right across there in a filing cabinet somewhere. After 10 years of searching almost, I wonder if I could just walk across the hall and get them. That wasn't his plan. That wasn't his plan. And doing so would have taken away the opportunity for me to further evangelize about how things happen in his time and not in ours. And during those 10 years, of course, I obtained many great things in my life. I finished my master's degree in social work. I married my husband, who he's not here, but he's the love of my life. I've known my husband since we were in high school together. You know, for any young people in the crowd, I had a crush on my husband before he ever knew that I existed. <laughs> so you never know what God intends for your life. My husband was set apart to be my husband. I truly believe that. But we led what most people thought were perfect lives. You know, you have the, the perfect jobs, you live in the perfect house. Life is good, right? Not when it's lacking. Not when it's lacking what you're called to do in this world. Not when it's lacking what you know will bring you true joy. And for me, that was fulfilling the plans for my life. And so after 10 years of searching in God's perfect time, along came my medical records. Now I tried one last time. I said, I either need to find those medical records 
find that family and come forward, or I need to move on because I can't keep wondering and walking on that path. And lo and behold, back in 2007, along came my medical records. And you can see copies of my medical records on my website. My website is really simple. Just Melissa Oden, O-H-D-E-N.com. And on the photos page, you can see copies of my medical records. And in that one portion that I keep on there, it says, a saline infusion for an abortion was done, but was unsuccessful. That statement is so powerful to me. My life had to result from something being unsuccessful. We know that is not God's plan for any of our lives. And that is also why we evangelize. So people can truly understand that every life is a success. Regardless of struggle, regardless of circumstance, regardless of situation, every life is a success. And through those medical records, I ultimately determined who my biological parents were. Because when they sent me the medical records, they actually, eh, they performed a bit of a mistake. We fill out all those fancy papers at the medical professional's offices about HIPAA protections, right? You can say they performed a HIPAA violation when they sent me my medical records. They forgot to black out my birth parent's name. Did I say God has a funny sense of humor? And, you know, if I would have done what I wanted to do with my free will and walk across that hallway and obtain those medical records, we wouldn't have been able to see what he did by allowing those medical records to come with my parents' names shining through. God did that. That wasn't a HIPAA violation. That was divine intervention. And that night, as I was reading through my medical records, you know, I'm not afraid to say that I have probably cried more tears than a lot of people in this world. But I jumped on the computer as I was drying all of those tears. And I was searching to see if I could find my biological parents. And within minutes of searching, I determined I was living in the very same city as my biological father. You know, I grew up in Storm Lake, moved to Sioux City to finish my master's degree. Knew that's where my mother's abortion had taken place, but never suspected my family was there. I mean, who would have thought? After 37 years, my father was there. And so I prayed about it for a couple of months. You know, I knew what I needed to do. That was to reach out to my father. And I did, after a couple of months of prayer. I sent my father a letter back in the summer of 2007, letting him know essentially everything I've told all of you tonight. I knew the truth, that I'm so blessed, that I love him, that I forgave him. And I said, you know, I'll be waiting if you ever want to have a relationship with me. Or just contact me. I'll be waiting to hear from you. Do you think I ever heard from my father? I never did. That was a really difficult thing, not only for me, but for my husband. Because he knew how much that meant to me. After years and years of searching, and to know that we were in the very same city. You know, I could go through a store, and I would see someone, and I would think, I wonder if that could be him. But I never heard from but I trusted in God's plan. And I'll tell you more about my father in a little bit. About that same time, after I hadn't heard back from my father, I turned my sights on my mother. I've never actually found her herself. But I have found her parents, my grandparents, who I now know played a very 
You know, in a world that talks about abortion being a choice and a right, what most people don't peel back the layers of are those words. And understand that women's own experiences and the statistics support telling us that most women are coerced. Over 61% in international statistics when it comes to abortion, 61% of women report being coerced. And that's what I know happened in my mother's own life. It wasn't her choice. It wasn't my father's choice. It was my grandparents. Very well-intentioned people. I truly believe that they meant no harm, like most people don't. What they didn't think about, though, is how it was all going to change. Not only would it end my life, but it would change my mother's life and all of theirs forever. But I believe they had good intentions. And I reached out to them that summer of 2007, asking them to contact my mother on my behalf. Do you think I ever heard back from them? I did. Within just about three days after I sent them the letter, my grandfather wrote me back, my mother's father. And in the letter, he admitted to the abortion taking place, which I think was very courageous. He also let me know a few things about my family that have now shaped who I am and what I do. Because he let me know in that letter that like so many women, my mother has never told anyone about her abortion. And I can't blame her. You know, we live in a world that doesn't want to talk about abortion. And when people talk about how it's affected them, by and large, this culture of death wants to silence those voices. But I pray for my mother as I pray for every other woman and man in this world who have been impacted by abortion, including those in this room. I pray that anybody impacted has someone to reach out to and talk to about it. That they know that they are loved and they are forgiven. I do this as much for my mother as I do for the children like me who don't enter this world. I also learned through that letter that the message of forgiveness I was asking them to pass along wasn't going anywhere. Because in recent years, they have become estranged from my mother. And it didn't make sense to me at the time. I was trying to piece together the parts of my family that I had learned about. But I understand it now, and maybe some of you understand it already too. If it wasn't my mother's choice to have her abortion 35 years ago, if my grandparents played such a heavy part in it taking place, it makes great sense that their relationship has been altered. And I see the families that I work with now around the world every single day. Whether it's talked about or not, abortion changes relationships, not only between significant others, but within family units. And that was the last time I heard from my mother's family, it was back in 2007. And lots of people ask me, are you still looking for them? I'm not actively. I really trust in him that this will happen at his time and not mine. It's in his way and not mine. And I truly have peace that my mother knows in her heart that I'm alive and well, and that I'm trying to do something good with something that was meant for evil in this world. And 2007 is also when I came forward publicly as a survivor for the first time. You know, I spoke very openly as a teenager about who I was. And then I went through a period of time where I was quiet. Not only quieted to be able to heal, but I was also silenced by the culture of death that we live in. And I went through years of my life too where I thought, oh, I'm so ashamed that I stopped talking 
Because people would say things to me like, you know, Melissa, I'm so sorry that that happened to you. But it doesn't mean you have to be pro-life. <laughs> it's an easy thing to take for granted. I truly believe that. It is an easy thing for so many people in our world to take for granted that they couldn't have been me. They could have been me. They may have been me and don't even know that. But I was silenced for a number of years because those people that I thought I most trusted were people who would say things like that in response. But I am grateful for those years because I was able to walk deeper in that faith. And I was able to truly learn who he is, who I am, and who he called me to be. You know, people ask me a lot, don't you wish it was different, Melissa? No. I mean, I wish that there wouldn't have been that attempt to end my life. But other than that, I wouldn't change who I am. I wouldn't change what I've learned. I wouldn't change what he's called me to do. This is who he created. But it's not always been easy. And I was silent. But when I stepped forward in 2007, I first shared my story on Capitol Hill out in Washington, D.C. Not a bad first speaking engagement, right? <laughs> <laughs> wake up some mornings and go, I cannot believe I did that yesterday. I live most days like that. I would get up and go, did I really just do that yesterday? Yes, I did. And I was out there on Capitol Hill thinking, you know what, Lord, thank you. You know, thank you for giving me the gift of this life so I can share with it with others. But I was also out there thinking, I am so sick to myself. I don't know that I can ever do this again. I mean, I'm not cut out for this. I thought I had a really bad case of nerves that first time I spoke publicly. Actually, what I really had was a bad case of morning sickness when our daughter <laughs> <laughs> Easy to get them because I was doing exactly what I had been saved for. And that was to share of what God has done in my life with the world. And so he blessed us with our daughter, who is amazing. You know, I was sharing back there just last night. She was pretty upset. She wanted to come tonight. And if we hadn't moved last week, she would have been here tonight. But she was having a hard time with me being gone yet again. And she said, Mama, I wish other people knew that it was wrong to kill babies. Because then you wouldn't have to be gone so much and teach them that. And just today, she was playing, doing the imaginative play that four-year-olds do. And she was working this morning. And when she was working, she said, Mommy, I'm going away to speak. Because then you don't have to do it alone. I think if both of us doing it together, we'll get the job done. <laughs> Amen, girl. If it doesn't make a change through my evangelization, I'm pretty sure it's going to make a change through hers. <laughs> but we were blessed with the gift of our daughter. And at that time, I was still working as a social worker. My master's degree is in social work, and I was working full-time as a social worker in addition to doing pro-life work. And maybe like me, you started thinking, you know what, Lord, what is it going to take for me to take that next step forward, to take that leap of faith and doing, do exactly what I'm called to do? You know, I kept my eyes and my ears and my heart open, and I knew that it was time. 
And so after speaking publicly for a number of years, I left my full-time work as a social worker and said, you know what, I will do this full-time. This is what you have saved me for. And at the time, I was working in state government. I was in management, and I could have people who said to me, Melissa, why did you leave this job? What are the benefits like with what you're going to do? The benefits? Well, when it comes to insurance, there isn't any. But there are, there are eternal benefits, I would like to think, to doing what I do. But during that time, as I was getting more involved in pro-life work, what I didn't know was that in early 2008, my father was back home in Sioux City fighting for his life. That is the reason why my father ultimately never responded to the letter. Because my father died about six months after I sent it to him. My father was 51. And he died almost to the very day of the anniversary of the Roe vs. Wade decision. That is not a coincidence. Not a coincidence. And I didn't know for a couple of months that he had passed. I ended up Googling his name on the internet one night. You know, very innocently, wanting to read about what was happening in his life. That night, I didn't read about my father's life. I read about his death when I stumbled across his obituary. And for any of you who are wondering if I know if I look like my mother or my father, I'm the spitting image of my father. And so there he was, staring back at me in his obituary. And I was devastated once again. You know, to look for my father for 10 years, find out we are living in the same city, wait to hear from him, and then he was gone. And I questioned God that night. That was not my plan. Everything that happened, that was not how I had it formed in my mind. And maybe some of you can relate to what that's like. You know, I always say it's easy to believe in, in God's will for our lives when things go the way we want them to. It's a whole other thing to believe in God's will when it goes not according to our plans. But that night when I questioned him, he spoke clearly to me and said, Melissa, be patient. I know this is not your plan, but my plan is much greater than what you have in mind. And so I trusted him as I always do. And I saw what God knew and I didn't as the months unfolded. What I didn't know was that even though my mother's family knew about the abortion, my father's family didn't know anything. They look back now on my father's life, and what he said about the time that I survived makes great sense to them. He said around that time he had done something he was so ashamed of that he would never tell another living soul about it. And he made good on that promise because he carried it to his grave. And that breaks my heart. For my father. No man deserves to carry the pain of abortion with them throughout their life, nonetheless to the grave. But what ended up happening is that when my father passed, he gave me the gift of his family. I now know that there was probably no other way for the truth to come to life. Because when my father passed away, his family cleaned out his office and they found the letter that I had sent him. I had sent it to his office thinking that was my free will. That I was somehow protecting him, never knowing if he had told anybody about me. What I didn't think about was how that was just God's plan. Because after he passed, they cleaned out the office, discovered the letter, and learned the great secret that he had carried 
And certainly, it devastated them to find out what had happened and what he had kept a secret. Around that time in 2008, his family started looking for me, and I was actually looking for them. And about that time, Olivia was born. And as was shared real briefly earlier, Olivia was born at the very same hospital where my life was supposed to end. And I almost didn't do that. We could have given birth to Olivia at another hospital, but we knew that that was the best hospital for her to be born at. So we went to our birthing class there when I was about seven months pregnant. And we sat there for almost two hours waiting for someone to show up to teach the class. And I had been praying so fervently, you know what, give us a sign. If this is where she is to be born, give us a sign. And when no one showed up to teach the class, I thought, there's the sign. <laughs> and as I was getting ready to get up and leave, I thought, this is it. This is too much for me. You know what, thank you, Lord, for showing me that this is not it. As I was getting ready to leave, a nurse finally showed up to teach the class, and she sat us all down, and she apologized. She said it wasn't bad weather that prevented someone to come in today. They just forgot to schedule someone. So they went down the, the roster until they found a nurse who could come in and teach the class. But she said, I'll make it up to you. I promise. I've worked here since the mid-1970s. And I have a lot of wisdom that I can impart to you. <laughs> you can imagine the dance I was doing in my seat, right? And my husband, knowing me far too well, was doing a dance too. And he was saying, Melissa, sit down. <laughs> don't. I know exactly what you're doing. Melissa, don't. I didn't do it right then, but I did walk up to her at lunch that day. We both happened to be washing our hands at the same time, very innocently. <laughs> and when I approached her that day, I told her who I was and what I had survived. And the tears started to fall down her face. She said, of course I know who you are. You look just like your grandmother. My maternal grandmother. I had always known that she had been a nurse in the area. But who would have thought? Who would have known that I would be a nurse at the birthing class who knew my grandmother and my maternal family and had been there at the hospital when I survived my mother's abortion? Could you imagine not sharing this with the world? Somebody said the other day, I love how God shows up in your life. <laughs> That's somewhat true. But I truly believe that God just makes himself very known to me because of what I do. Because I choose to be the evangelist that he intended for me to be, he keeps blessing me with all of these experiences so I can go forth and share that with other people. And that was the sign I truly believe that we were waiting for, for Lydia to be born in that hospital, and so she was. And I will tell you that that changed my life, to know that that hospital had been redeemed. And it also, it helped me to know that I hopefully blessed that nurse. And I believe that I did, because when Olivia was born, when I told the nurse who delivered her who I was, she said, oh, she told us all about me. When you share and witness with others, then pass it along. And that's what we need to do after tonight. So Olivia was born in the same hospital, right here in St. Luke's, and not long after she was born, my father's family found me. They had been waiting. They had actually posted a message on the internet to me, and I hadn't seen it. But 
But they were waiting for her to be born, and after she was, they watched the paper and my great aunt sent me a message. She's my grandmother's youngest sister on my dad's side. And not long after I met my great aunt, my grandfather showed up on our doorstep. And my grandfather is 85 years old and one of my favorite people in this world. When my family was looking at moving away from Sioux City, he was the person that I worried the most about. And when I told him that he was moving, he started to cry. And he said, now, what am I going to do? From the words of our family, finding out about me, and then finding out about his great-grandchild has changed my grandfather's life. And I don't give myself credit for that. How do I give God the credit? I have about 20 family members that live in the Sioux City area. My grandmother, my half-sister who's a teenager, I have aunts and uncles, I have cousins. And I wish I could stand before all of you tonight and tell you that I have met all of that, and that it is happy and it is joyous, but it is not. Abortion hasn't done beautiful things to my family. You know what? God has redeemed what happened in my life. God has healed me. And he's going to continue to heal my family, but at this point, my family is still hurting. My own grandmother has never met me. I'm afraid I may never meet her. I'm a sister. And I know that it's hard for my family because I'm so public with my testimony and what abortion has done to my family. But I know that through their words and through their experiences, it's not the fact that I'm public about it, it's hard for them. It's the fact that I was supposed to die from abortion 35 years ago, and they could do nothing to save me. That's what's so hard for my family. And as much as I wish it was different, I know that this is what God intended for the world to see. That abortion ends a life that looks like this. And lives for future generations to come. You know, as a mother, I wake up to my little girl every day knowing that she never would live. If that abortion would have succeeded in ending my life, that is the hardest thing I have to live with in this world. And she said recently, she said, Mommy, I wish she could have had it to take mama. And I waited. And I had no idea what she would say yes. And she said, You know, one who did you try to kill me first. And I waited again, and the tears were flowing down my face. And she said, if only your mommy would have known, even though she didn't know how to take care of a baby, somebody else could teach her. If only she would have known that, maybe she would have made a different choice. But I'm just glad that God picked Grandma and Grandma to be a mom and your dad. God will continue to heal my family. I am sure of that. And until then, this is what God intends for me to evangelize in the world. That we are all called to make a difference in the cost of life. That every single one of us are equipped with whatever gifts he has given us to do whatever it is we can do for the cause of life in this world. And that if one of us or someone you know has been affected by an abortion, lead them to healing. Let them know who they can talk to, who they can turn to for help. And let them know that they are loved through your words and your actions. So I just want to thank all of you for your time tonight. I'm going to be heading downstairs in a little bit. Um, we're going to be taking some time so I can greet people individually and, and
necessary so I can help you with anything that you need to help with. So thank you so much, Shreve Mike, for tonight.